James Kuno is the CEO and president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Before joining the Getty last year, he was president and director of the Art Institute of Chicago. He has also taught and directed museums at the University of London, the Harvard University Art Museums, Dartmouth's Hood Museum of Art, and UCLA's Grunwald Center for the Graphic Arts. He is the author, most recently, of Museums Matter and Who Owns Antiquity, and is co-author or co-editor of several other books. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. James Kuno. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you all for coming out on this evening. I'm thrilled to be surrounded by these powerful automobiles. Um, and not that I know anything about cars, but I happen to be married to a woman who does, and I'm probably the only guy in the room whose wife um, is a subscriber to both uh, road and track and car and driver. Yeah, so. so I can go home a hero tonight if I can remember any of these cars by names. Okay, so I want to talk about this, uh, this book and what prompted it and uh, some of the things that I put into it and some of the thoughts I have about the subject that it, it comprises. And it began by thinking that over the past 25 years, museums have become kind of astonishingly popular. That is, according to the art newspaper, the 30 most popular exhibitions of 2009 attracted more than 12 million visits. While the AAMD, which is North America's Association of Art Museum Directors, uh, reported a total attendance of 42 million at only its top 100 art museums. So I'm kind of astonished by this because you know, people are busy, they lead busy lives, and yet they find time to take themselves and their families into art museums on days they might otherwise do something else, and often something else for free, when it might cost them something to go into art museums. So one wonders, what, why? You know, what, what compels them to go into the museum? We think we know. We think we know it's about uh, education, it's about inspiration, it's about finding a, a place to build a safe community, um, it, it's about uh, curiosity, uh, it, it's about ambition for your children. Uh, I think it's also something about wanting to come into contact with new and strange and wonderful things and having one's view of the world enlarged and one's sense of one's place in that world expanded upon and, 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 and getting inspired oneself uh, by new and strange things, things that, that prompt curiosity about the world and from the, such curiosity, I hold that there's a promise that it will lead to understanding and tolerance about difference in the world. I, so I looked at this phenomenon and began to think about it, and I wanted to concentrate on one particular kind of museum called an encyclopedic museum, uh, and that is one which has representative examples of all the world's cultures under one roof or in one museum, which takes its name, obviously, from the encyclopedia, which promises the same. They have all the known facts of the world within... The, the covers of a book or a sequence of such volumes of a book. And I find, and I will make the case, or I make the case in the book, I hope others will accept it as the case is made, that um, uh, such museums are an argument against essentialized national differences, those things that lock us into our own little patch of, of, of space and humanity in the sense of a culture that is irrecusably distinct from, from another such culture. Uh, and at, at a time uh, uh, when these essentialized national identities have become the discourse of, of, of impervious difference uh, in the world, uh, in which one talks freely and easily about the clash of civilizations, as if civilizations are themselves fixed entities, um, about the inevitability of cultural conflict based on these essentialized cultural differences, something that defines us as different from them, whoever they, them might be. I hold that an encyclopedic museum is a secular cosmopolitan space and a space of such a kind for inquiry and disputation as a result of that inquiry. 
So I began by thinking about the origins of the Encyclopedic Museum, and it lay in the 18th century in the Enlightenment. It is an, it is an instrument of the Enlightenment, uh, like the encyclopedia, like the, like the um, dictionary is as well, like newspapers for the most part are, like the coffee shop is, uh, all places where there are opportunities for discourse in the public realm. And it starts with the British Museum, which was founded in 1753 uh, when... Uh, King George II accepted the terms of a bequest to the nation that was made by Sir Hans Sloane, who was an, a, a, a medicine, medical man and a secretary to the Royal Academy of Science uh, in Britain, uh, having been preceded by New Isaac Newton in that position, and who had gathered about things, uh, gathered to, for himself things representative of the world, natural things, artificial things, on the premise that from such an archive of facts about the world, one could pose questions about relationships, and one could formulate answers to those questions, and then one could dispute those and critique the, those, those answers uh, and until one finds a set of truths one is confident in, and then one is always compelled to critique those truths as formulated. But when he died, he gave it to the, gave it to the nation. The nation had no way to deal with this. They, they, and, you know, the, so, so they found, they took a, from common law, they took the principle of a trust. The first instance in which trustees were appointed to hold something in trust for the public. Now, um, Sir Hans Sloane had other ideas about this. He wanted to give his collection to England, of course, to London, where it would be housed, because that's where he lived. Um, but if, it didn't, if they didn't accept the terms in London, then it was meant to go to, in sequence, to St. Petersburg, to Paris, uh, uh, to, to Spain, to, to Madrid, wherever there were royal scientific societies, or scientific societies, bodies of scientists who were, who were concerned about natural philosophy, concerned about seeking truths about the world. Um, it didn't give it to a place as much as to an idea. And it just happened that then in London, he had two other principles that he required before he could pass this bequest on to the, to, the, to, the, to the state. And it is that it had to be open free to all curious people. Um, and um, and, and, and if, there's, if the, these terms weren't kept, that it had to be free and open to all curious people, um, that it could be um, uh, installed and in, in, in taken care of in, in ways that give people access to this information, then it would be passed from one to the next. Well, the British government did set up these trustees. And uh, this puts the British Museum, unlike the Louvre and unlike the Hermitage, unlike the Berlin State Museums, for example, at arm's length from government. That's an important fact. The fact that this is not a, na uh, a national museum in the sense that it is part of the government. It is at arm's length from the government. It is not a museum that tells the story of Britain. It's a museum that tells the story of the world. One of the things that the current um, director of the British Museum, Neil McGregor, always likes to point out is that one of the things that surprises people most when they go to the British Museum is that there are so few British things in it because it really was not about a Britain identity. The narrative it wrote was a narrative of the world and one's place in that world. The contrast then between the Louvre, Hermitage, and British Museums and, um, and those, uh, sorry, the Berlin Museums is that the fact that it is not, an, the director of the British Museum reports to a board of trustees and not to a secretary of culture or minister of culture. It promises that to know the world, one has to gather sufficient specimens to study, as I said, form these hypotheses, test the hypotheses, formulate truths, which then one continuously subjects to critique. The, the, the corollary to this is the encyclopedia, which, remember, was a very dangerous instrument at the time because it put into the hands of ordinary human beings knowledge, uh, knowledge that they could then apply their reason to to formulate truths that, that, that might be independent of the dogma that, that 
you know, the authorities wished them to receive un, in an unquestioned way. Encyclopedia, Encyclopédie in, in Paris was printed, first published in 1728, Encyclopedia Britannica in 1768. The British Museum founded just between those in 1753. In 1759, Pope Clement XII was so concerned about the encyclopedia and the fact that it was putting these, the, this information in the hands of individuals who could then exercise their reason independent of, of authority figures like the church at that time, is that he called for all Catholics to have encyclopedias burned by a priest if they had them, that, uh, that to burn, have them burned by a priest um, or face excommunication. Because there was something really dangerous about letting people have their individual agency to use their own reasoning powers um, in confrontation with facts about the world. Putting, the, the putting information in the hands of the, of the people whose individual agency allows them to question and even reject authority and received opinion was the promise of the encyclopedia, of the dictionary, of newspapers, of critical journals. London's culture at the time was a public culture filled with coffee houses, newspapers, critical journals. The art historian from Caltech, John Brewer, says of this that these encouraged a polyphony of public conversations which challenged the voice of the crown. London was also a cosmopolitan international capital. By 1800, it was the largest city in all of Europe. Only Edo, today's Tokyo, uh, Peking, today's Beijing, and Constantinople, uh, today's Istanbul, uh, were larger. So that rapid growth of London and the diversity of peoples in London and the public culture of London as a disputation, a culture, a culture of disputation, uh, was what um, characterized the context of the British Museum. At the same time, in 1783, there was a question asked in a, in a journal of what is the Enlightenment? And Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, answered that question in the following way, or among the things he said. It relies on the public use of one's reason. Not the private use, but the public use. Uh, in, in company, uh, through the journals, uh, in, in public discourse like Zocalo Public Square uh, celebrates. Um, before him, David Hume, um, had a, uh, railed against academics for closeting knowledge in colleges and universities. This has to be knowledge that the, pe the people have access to. They also Kant answered the, uh, the question of what is the Enlightenment by saying it promotes a commonwealth of learning that is across national borders in which people, thoughtful people, can, can, can be in communication with each other independent of the constraints that national borders might put on them because they can, through all these means of mediation, whether it's writing letters and sending them through a postal service or journals that are published in Berlin or in Madrid or in, in St. Petersburg uh, or in London. It also looked at uh, enlightenment also celebrated and held as a firm principle of the freedom and, the, and, and, of freedom and of equality and of human rights. Of these, Kant said, if all individuals are free, they must necessarily be equally so, for the freedom of all individuals is absolute and can, and can only be universally and equally restricted by law. The idea of freedom entails the individual's autonomy, for it postulates the individual's power of exercising his will independently, uninhibited by improper constraints. In many ways, the Enlightenment is you know, with us. We are heirs to the Enlightenment, and it is the origins of classical liberalism, as the great um, political philosopher, current living political philosopher, uh, Alan Wolf has written of it, classical liberalism, heir to in the Enlightenment principles. Its understanding of human nature, its respect for both individualism and equality, its discovery of the social, its passion for justice, 
its preference for experience over theory, its intellectual openness, its commitment to fairness. The basic principles of classic liberalism, which has its roots in the era of the founding of the British Museum. So this is the context of what I call in the first chapter of the book, the Enlightenment Museum. A cosmopolitan urban center with a diverse and rapidly expanding population and a disputatious culture of debate and published argument, opposed to prejudice and superstitions, suspicious of received truths and the specialization of knowledge, confident in the promise of science, the gathering, classifying, and cataloging of, of facts about the world, to yield truths that would contribute to human progress, and one grounded in individual agency, voluntary association, and human rights. So that's where I began, to look at this particular kind of museum and the promise it holds for promoting tolerance and understanding of difference in the world. Then I looked at the discursive museum in the second chapter, um, which is that museums not only collect facts about the world, but they present them publicly in some reasonable kind of way. They install them, whatever kind of museum, but you know, in an encyclopedic museum, you install them in ways that make some sense, tell some kind of story. Um, but in the process, you respect the individual agency of the visitor to make his or her own way through that, that installation and begin to tell stories themselves about what it is that they are experiencing. Sometimes museums ponder how to install things, you know, things like things with like things. So ceramics with ceramics, silver with silver, paintings with paintings, French things with French things, Chinese things with Chinese things, or sometimes they cross them, but they ponder how to install it. And they ponder and think about what stories they're telling in the, in the process. Recent academic criticism of museums uh, have, have suggested that museums are institutions which reinforce the hegemony of the state and the social and the political elite because they have a, they have a kind of control over the visitor. They, that they, they, they disrupt the individual agency of the visitor and they have control over the visitor to, to reinforce the hegemony of, of the cultural and political elite. Two in particular, a um, woman named Carol Duncan and a man named Alan Wallach have written jointly about this and they write of the experience of the, visiting the museum as like a ritual. Uh, the museum they say the museum organizes the visitor's experience as a script organizes a performance. And how do they do that? Uh, well, how does the museum do that? Well, it puts things in certain places in certain ways, and it directs visitors to proceed in certain ways through that installation. So say the critics Carol Duncan and Alan Wallach. And the script, therefore, that the museum is writing in this ritual that they, that of installation, according to them, it is the idea of the state and the power and the social authority of the patron class. Another scholar, Donald Pet Preziosi, goes even farther than this and writes about the control that the museum has over the visitor in, in psychoanalytic terms. He says, the object can only confront the subject from a place where the subject is not. It is in this fascination with modernity's paradigmatic object, with art as such in museological and discursive space, that the subject or spectator is bound over to it, laying down his or her gaze in favor of this quite remarkable object. And it is in this fascination that we find ourselves as subjects remembered, repairing our dismemberment. Museums disarm us so as to make us remember ourselves in new ways, or to put it another way, museums help us to forget who we are. Now, it's not all they do. Museums do, they also gender their subject. In Preziosi's words, the modern museum of art may also be understood as an instrument of compulsory heterosexuality. One of the chief productions of the institution, after all, is the engendered subject, 
the typologies of gender positions are among the museum's effects. The position of the museum user, the viewer, is an unmarked analog to that of the unmarked male heterosexual pose position. So much has been clear. What may be less apparent is that all art is drag and that hegemonic heterosexuality is itself a continual and repeated imitation and reiteration of its own, de own idealization, just as the viewer's position in exhibitionary space is always already prefabricated and bespoken, so also is all gender a uh, drag. Now, um, I don't know about you, your experience in museums. Those don't um, characterize my experience in museums. Um, and to these critics, Museum installations, and thus museums themselves, are never not ideologically motivated and strategically determined. They are always already part of a discursive formulation in which the discourse is power, the power of the institution over that, over the individual. But the obvious question in all this is, if that's the case, if the museum has that kind of power over individuals, and that power is in line or in keeping with the power of the state, if museums have that kind of power, how did Duncan, Wallach, and Preziosi escape from the museum's hold over them? And then if they can escape it, why can't we? Why can't all of us? Why don't they and why, uh, uh, respect the individual agency of ourselves to walk through a museum as we wish? Now, you can ponder all you want as a museum person how to install a gallery. But if a gallery has two doors in it, you don't know which way they're gonna, people are going to enter, which direction they're going to turn right, they're going to turn left. You're not going to know if they're going to look at this painting over that painting or this sculpture over that sculpture. You don't know if they're going to um, go in the reverse order in which you placed things because people do things as they wish. Museums don't have control over people. We open the doors to people and people wander as they might. Um, I'm always reminded, I think, of a yet another writer who writes about museums a lot, often in The New Yorker, Adam Gopnik, who says in walking through the museum, in his words, you made up your own story, and you did it simply by not paying attention to things that didn't interest you. And it seems there's no more grander or more necessary conception that one needs of a museum, except that it is a place to go and look at things. The next chapter, I talked about the cosmopolitan, what I call the cosmopolitan museum. So you're looking at these things in an encyclopedia museum, and you're traveling through them. And I, I wanted to suggest that it's not unlike travel. And the narrative that you write as you go through such a museum is like a travel account of your experience. You're coming upon these strange things, you're, you're wondering about them, you're learning about them, you're putting them together in some relationship as you go through, and you're translating that experience in the ways that translators translate foreign languages into their own language. So you're translating your experience of that, of those strange and wonderful things into something that you can make sense of, and you're writing a kind of imaginary story, a tale about that. Now, cosmopolitanism, of course, dates back to Diogenes the Cynic, who says, I am a citizen of this world. Or Seneca, who always wrote of each of us dwelling in two communities, the local community of our birth and the greater community of human aspiration, the latter of which is, in his words, truly great and truly common, in which we look neither to this corner nor to that, but measure the boundaries of our nation by the sun. Nation there being a metaphor, not a political construct. Cosmopolitanism, uh, cosmopolitanism and patriotism can sometimes be intention, but cosmopolitanism, patriotism, and nationalism are three very different kinds of things. The last, nationalism, being a means by which one essentializes difference. This culture, the, this nation from that nation, the primacy in which nations have control over our own identity of who we in, as individuals are. 
when of course we as individuals are many different kinds of things, by our gender, by our sexual preference, by the language we speak, by the color of our hair, by the religion that we practice, whatever it might be. In, 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 in the Enlightenment period, at the time of the Encyclopedic Museum, the aspiration was cosmopolitan, but it recognized that people do live in political units and can be patriotic to that unit, needn't deny its priority. Again, Alan Wolf, who is the political philosopher about liberalism, writes, in the future of liberalism, we are not rootless individuals unattached to any particular community. Liberals believe, but instead, oh, sorry. So liberals believe we are not rootless individuals unattached to any particular community, but instead live in societies that continue to define themselves, ourselves, as nation states with particular histories, policies, traditions, and rights. Without a nation, neither liberty nor equality can be realized, for the former presupposes the existence of society, and the latter requires policies provided by the state. A citizen of the world must also be a citizen of a particular country. The difficult problem facing liberals is not whether to choose between national and global responsibilities, but how to find ways to balance them. So you can find a way in our world, in the, the nation, world of nation states, to be both aspire to, to cosmopolitanism in that commonwealth of learning in which you can reach across political borders to build relationships of understanding elsewhere in the world while still recognizing that one lives in a particular political construct and one can believe in its values and one can hold its values to the principles of reason, the enlightenment, fairness, liberty, human rights, and you can do so by still being patriotic to it, yet aspire to greatness beyond it. The Cosmopolitan Museum argues against um, the essentializing identities that don't allow you to get beyond the political identity that you are associated with as a member of a, one nation or another. Art has never known uh, or acknowledged political borders. It's always reached across them and always been made of contact with these new and strange and wonderful things Art is always a hybrid. It's always born of contact with new and strange things. It's, it's a mongrel in which one can find the influence of many national cultures in one. The Cosmopolitan Museum argues against these essentializing identities, and it recognizes what UNESCO has written or has said in a report uh, of its World Commission on Culture and Development in 1997 when it concluded that no culture is hermetically sealed, is a, is a hermetically sealed entity, nor is any culture changeless, invariant, or static. All cultures are in a state of constant flux driven by both internal and external forces. It makes one think like the Indian social, so, social, social, political, social and political writer Arjun Apadurai has said when he argues that the principles and procedures of the modern nation state, state the idea of a sovereign and stable territory, the idea of a containable and countable population, the idea of a reliable census, and the idea of stable and transparent categories have come so unglued in our era of globalization that they have produced new incentives for cultural purification as more nations lose the illusion of national economic sovereignty of well-being. This, he results, in, the result, he claims, is a dangerous, often violent, narcissism of minor differences between ourselves and others. 
then I come into another chapter on the Imperial Museum. If that's the aspiration of the, of the Cosmopolitan Museum, if the Enlightenment Museum promotes uh, access to strange and wonderful and new things about the world to promote understanding and uh, tolerance of difference, if the Discursive Museum allows individuals to ex experience that museum on their own as they wish to translate their experience in, in, in something akin to travel accounts as they go through these worlds in, in, they're represented in the museum. And if the Cosmopolitan Museum promotes a kind of an aspiration of living and imagining beyond one's political borders, there is something called the Imperial Museum, or at least in my book it's called. When I often talk about this, I face the criticism that encyclopedic museums are really the result of empire. They're manifestations of historical imbalances of power by which stronger nations enrich themselves at the expense of weaker ones. I always reply that they are not instruments of empire, but witnesses to empire. It is the case that encyclopedic museums tend to be wherever the Enlightenment left its mark. It tends to be in Northern Europe and in North America, not in South America, not in Asia, not in the Middle East, and not even most often in Southern Europe. Uh, but it's where the Enlightenment and the broad curiosity about the world left its mark. So I replied that while they might be witnesses to empire, empire, and not only in the years since their founding, but with their deep historical collections, ever since imperialism has existed in the world, they are witnesses to that, but not instruments of it. The history of empire is a long one, and the result has always been an intertwining of the histories and cultures of the imperializer and the imperialized. There's no such thing as uh, uh, you know, separate forces. There's always brought people together in ways, even if the motivation is questionable. Uh, Edward Said, the great uh, scholar of comparative literature, late scholar of comparative literature and modern politics, and also of music, Western music, uh, wrote about comparative literature, his great uh, academic discipline, which, like encyclopedic museums, originated in the period of high European imperialism and is irrecusably linked to it. He wrote of it uh, that the purpose and the ambition of the study of comparative, comparative literature is to move beyond insularity and provincialism and to see cultures and literatures together contrapuntally. He went on to say that the constitution and early aims of comparative literature were to get a perspective beyond one's own nation, to see, see some sort of whole instead of the, of the defensive little patch offered by one's own culture, literature, and history. And then elsewhere in his writings, he says, if I have insisted on integration and connections between the past and the present, between imperializer and, and imperialized, between culture and imperialism, I've done so not to level or reduce differences, but rather to convey a more urgent sense of the interdependence between things. Finally, just one last quote from uh, Edward Said, who's our guide through these things. He says, so vast and yet so detailed is imperialism as an experience with cru crucial cultural dimensions that we must speak of overlapping territories, intertwined histories, common to men and women, whites and non-whites, dwellers in the metropolis and on the peripheries, past as well as future. These territories and histories can only be seen from the perspective of the whole of secular human history. So works of art are evidence of empire. You see it in every encyclopedic museum. You can take a blue and white ceramic ewer with silver fittings, for example, in the Art Institute's collection, which was made in China during the Ming Dynasty uh, for the trade to Southeast Asia, from which it then traded through the Safavid Dynasty of the Iranian Empire and came to Britain during the Jacobean period when it fell into the imperial reaches of the East India Company 
or you can take it a Benin plaque from the Benin Empire, which is now part of uh, Nigeria, uh, which was at the time an empire of itself and of its own, came into conflict with, and con contact first, then conflict with the European empires of Portugal and Britain, and then during a, 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 an attack and, uh, and of some violence, there was a putative expedition that raided the capital of Benin by the British army, and things were taken from them to be sold to benefit the families and widows of the British soldiers who died. But just to say that that wasn't the only imperial act or an act by an empire. The, the Benin entity itself was an empire. Or you can look at a Gandharan sculpture of a bodhisattva, the Gandharan, which is the ancient sort of Afghan area, uh, which bears witnesses to not only Cyrus's Persian empire, uh, but to Alexander's Greek empire and to the subsequent Mauryan, Kushan, and Sassanid empires. Should one look for evidence of empire, whether of a political, economic, or cultural kind, one can find it everywhere in the Encyclopedic Museum, for it is a fact of history, and works of art are evidence of that history. So I go through the book from, uh, from the uh, Enlightenment Museum to the um, uh, Discursive Museum to the Cosmopolitan Museum to the Imperial Museum. Then I pause in an epilogue to reflect on a case study, as it were, uh, and that is India. Uh, I reflect on India, a nation, of course, with a glorious uh, 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 past of art artistic legacy, one of the greatest of all, uh, which is itself and has been for a century uh, periodically racked with communal violence, that is, between Hindus and, and Muslims. A friend of mine, the cultural critic Homi Baba, who is Indian, uh, once told me that when he went away to university in Oxford, he found life there provincial compared to Bombay, where he had lived and first studied. He said of it that there was something about the academic, the active hybridization of cultural practices and values in Bombay that made the city, its conversations and confluences, remarkably in invigorating. By comparison, Oxford seemed pallid and self-protective. Now, when one thinks about the empire in Britain, one has to acknowledge that the foundations of all the educational cultural institutions of the modern India were laid by the British under the empire. The universities, the National Museum of India, the Archaeological Survey of India, all those others. But what's quite interesting to me about this, how many minutes, five? Okay, quite interesting to me about this, uh, a colleague of mine, Kavita Singh, who teaches at Nehru University in Delhi, uh, wrote a book about museums in, in India. And under the Raj, that is under, under the British imperial control, um, the, British, the princely courts out in Rajasthan and el elsewhere, uh, including the famous one in Baroda, or, or the pr or private citizens, as in Bombay, uh, and uh, w the Tata family being one example, giving collections to the Prince of Wales Museum, as it was once called, the City Museum, Art Museum, uh, building up these encyclopedic collections in Baroda or in, in Bombay. These were not British institutions. These were, not, these were regional institutions built by princely courts or private individuals. That there were not encyclopedic museums in the imperial city in Delhi. The example of India and the negative consequences of empire are in the absence of such a critically important British-derived Enlightenment institution. The British did not leave it there. So I say that they conclude that the example of India is evidence of the need to cultivate a cosmopolitan view of the world because of this, 
this sectarian and communal violence that one reads about it all. You might have read that, that Salman Rushdie is not going to the Jaipur Literature Festival because his life was threatened yet again. Um, and, and so it's still a fractious place. So uh, example of India is, uh, India is evidence of the need to cultivate a cosmopolitan view of the world and to encourage cultural institutions to support it. The British, having launched the quintessential cultural institution, the Encyclopedic Museum, exploited India economically, deprived its citizens of self-determination, um, and only after decades of protest and violent confrontations, and established many of its lasting cultural institutions. But they failed to give India what Britain enjoyed for itself, and what others have since emulated. Museums with representative examples of the world's cultures, committed to scientific inquiry, open to the public and respected of individual agency, and dedicated to the dissipation of ignorance about the world. The absence of such museums, except for those few small but noble ones established locally in Baroda and in Jaipur and in, in, in Mumbai, um, are part of the tragic legacy of empire in India. So I want to conclude just with one last um, quote from Edward Said as we think about the Enlightenment Museum and the promise that it holds at a time in which the clash of civilization is uh, a, a constant uh, refrain. The map of the world, Said once wrote, has no divinely or dogmatically sanctioned spaces, essences, or privileges. However, we may speak of secular space and of humanly constructed and interdependent histories that are fundamentally know knowable, although not through grand theory of system, system, systematic totalization. The Encyclopedic Museum is just such a space, I argue. It was founded on the Enlightenment principles of suspicion of unverifiable truths, opposition to prejudice and superstition, confidence in individual agency, the public exercise of reason, and the promise that critical inquiry can lead to truths about the world for the benefit of human progress and the forging of a common pluralistic identity from our highest, most noble aspirations. I think is it. All right, thank you. Hi, my name's uh, John Gary. Who's Gus? It's nice of you to ask that. I dedicated the book to Gus. Um, Gus was our dog, and uh, uh, Gus was a very sweet, loving dog that meant a great deal to my family, and he died while I was completing the book. Uh, he and my wife were a therapy team that worked in hospitals and mental institutions and in the um, uh, juvenile justice system. There aren't really encyclopedias anymore. You can't give away an Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, with the internet as a way of disseminating knowledge, how do museums still matter? Because I think they provide access uh, locally and at, at some distance over the internet to the resources of the museum itself. I think that the, the internet, as has been the case with music and otherwise, is going to drive people to um, the experience of the authentic thing. And that authentic thing is in the museum. So I think it's an ally of the museum and not a replacement of the museum. Are you really advocating for the imposition of encyclopedic, in essence, uh, you know, sort of imperial institutions in the 21st century? Not for any imposition. You know, I, I argue for choice. And, and the, in fact, the argument is against imposition of, of unverified truths, for example, of dogma handed down by authorities, whatever it might be. So there's no argument for imposition. And I don't think that, as I said, I argue against this being conceived simply as an imperialized, in, imperial institution. I don't think it's that. Um, so we'll probably disagree on those terms. But um, I, I think that this 18th century phenomenon 
lives with us today, just as the principles of the Enlightenment live with us in the form of classical, classical liberalism in a secular, secular disputation, disputational culture. So I think that's good, and I think that the, 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 um, the disputation that will occur can occur within the museum, among visitors, between the visitor and the institution. It can be, it occur outside the museum as one takes the experience of the museum with one in one's life elsewhere. Uh, it can occur over the internet between visitor and authority, museum, uh, uh, or it can occur within the public commons that uh, one takes the museum out into that. So, I, so I, I do value the, the differences that one might have with, with someone and that can be provoked by an experience in a museum. I, I agree with just about everything you say, and uh, it's, of course, always good fun to make fun of theory and the humanities. You know, the local newspaper does it any time. The Modern Language Association is in town, and we see what kind of papers they're giving. But I think the idea behind these theories of discourse is that it's not something that we consciously recognize. That's why Preziosi, whose absurd theories you point out, is using a psychoanalytic model uh, in the same way that we wouldn't necessarily be able to say what happened to us as an infant affects us today. We might not really be conscious of the kind of subliminal message of a museum. I think that's the idea that these critics are getting at. So I'm not sure it's an adequate critique of their ideas to say, well, I didn't think that when I walked out of the museum. Nonetheless, museums have certain kinds of art. They historically have neglected certain kinds of art um, and so forth. So how on those terms, how would you respond to the critique? I think that reason is the response to the critique. In other words, I think that, that through the exercise of critical reason, you know, one can ask, should ask those questions, come to some conclusions, and then critique those conclusions oneself, rather than assuming that one has no access to, to the, the source of one's framework or framing of, of experience. So I don't want to think that there is something I, have, I cannot penetrate myself with my reason alone and in my own form of critique of this thing. So I think what this sense of discursive power um, takes that um, ability away, that power away from the individual. It doesn't recognize individual agency. It thinks that institutions deprive individuals of that agency. If that's the case, it's our, our, reason, our, our reasoning power that can critique that institution and disable that institution. I wondered um, if you could talk to the question of to what extent does it um, in any way promote uh, destruction of works of art? I think of uh, Gutenberg Bibles and there are lots of, lots of institutions that have a single page or a single page of an illustrated manuscript that obviously involved uh, tearing up a, an object. Um, so I do think it's a, that uh, it, there's a, an element of, uh, there's a potential to promote the destruction of these works be, um, in an effort to claim universalism and uh, wondered if you would uh, comment on that. First, I, I try to uh, not use the word universal museum and sometimes it is used as that and, and I think that connotes a kind of authority or power um, and I don't, don't mean this, don't take this the wrong way, but like the Catholic Church, the universal church, there's that sense of, of a kind of organized dominance. And so encyclopedic, I think, is what I like because that puts, hand, that puts information in the hands of individuals, and that's, I prefer to use that. Um, it, to the extent that, it, that, that such museums promote the destruction of works of art, well, that's intolerable and uh, should be condemned. Um, and, but I think that in the best circumstances, the, the, the museum is a safe harbor for such things that are at risk in the world um, because they can be brought into a public space in environments in which they can be protected. If in the process of doing that, one encourages destruction, then one is 
you know, guilty of a crime. So uh, I think we would ag agree on that. But, but there's a way to think of a museum as also a safe harbor for these endangered, endangered objects. I completely agree with your theories, but just to play devil's advocate, um, in a practical sense, on the ground, a museum like the British Museum, it, it's great that it has all these different cultures in it, but what do you say that it is, it is national at the end of the day, it is held in Britain, what do you say to countries like Greece who are requesting the return of the Elgin marbles? Or, you know, you are holding people's identities in the sense of their objects that they identify with, and they may want them back, not in, you know, in the British Museum or in any other encyclopedic right. museum. I like, to th I like to argue, as I do, ag against it, you know, because I like to think that, um, that, um, these, w that we, these national identities are things that we accept. We're not, I, I don't believe we're born into national identities. I think we accept them. We're born into you know, our family, but not into a particular national, national consciousness. Although in the 19th century, of course, that was an, a nationalism, which is a 19th century phenomenon. That was the case, that it preceded one's birth, that one, one, one became, at birth, limited by an identity with a, with a national identity. Um, uh, so so, so I, what I think happens in the, in the encyclopedic museum is it questions that essentializing, that totality uh, of a national identity, and it allows one to, to, to aspire to other kinds of identities, to identify with nothing, to realize that there's no real, there's nothing that you can't identify with in a certain, in a certain way, and it encourages that. Now, for the case of, of um, uh, the case that it is a British Museum. See, I don't think it is. I think it's a world museum located in London, and there's nothing in there. I don't think that. Um, I mean, I think I experience. I'm talking to my friends who are, who are British by 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 nationality. Uh, I don't think that they think differently of their experience of the British Museum than I do. You know, it isn't it isn't it isn't something that is defining of them as as British. It happens to be a, a resource they 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 visit. Um, the question of of. Of, of nations or individuals identifying with cultural artifacts as being of them, of them, you know, part of their identity, is a very, very complicated thing. I, I, hap I simply don't understand it. You know, I don't feel that way myself. Uh, I think it's, a, I think it's often a dangerous thing. But I recognize that, especially in the in the diaspora, it can be a very important thing because in the diaspora, where one maybe feels unsettled by having lost that rooted identity. One clings to cultural artifacts as, as evidence of an identity that one feels at risk. So I'm, I, I, under, I think I understand some part of it. I just simply don't agree with it. I agree with many of the things that you put forward in your book. And I am very much pro the 1997 UNESCO sentiment. I think it's a lovely idea. It's very similar to what they, echo, what they wrote in 1970. But unfortunately, I think there's a huge chasm that still divides what we consider first world museums, encyclopedic museums in Britain and in the United States, and museums in especially Latin America and other parts of Europe and Africa and Asia. How do we bridge that chasm? The way that they think about museums and these types of institutions there is very different. And it's very difficult as a museum professional to sometimes bridge that divide. How do we move forward? I think we have to do as the, it, it, as, as the British Museum did not. You know, this is not a privileged uh, institution to be preserved only in Northern Europe and in North America. It is something to be encouraged around the world through partnerships, collaborations, um, sharing 
um, that, that occurs. The British Museum is very active, as you might know, in Africa, for example, in Kenya in particular, uh, working with museums there, providing expertise um, and instruction, as well as uh, works of art on loan to exhibitions there. Works of art chosen by Kenyan um, uh, museum curators who wanted to have in Kenya not as it were, Kenyan things, but rather other things, things that wouldn't otherwise have access to. So, um, it, you know, we, I think we just have to reach out. Now, I'm, I'm very happy and proud to say that the, the Getty Trust, as a trust, is involved uh, around the world, whether it's in Western China or in, uh, in Rajasthan in India or in, the, uh, you know, the, the, in, in Egypt in the Valley of the King and the Valley of the Queens. But um, in order to build these relationships and, and to, to realize that, that the imbalance of power, while an historical fact, doesn't need to be perpetuated as it was once per perpetuated in the past, but rather you know, one has a responsibility now with these objects and with this set of expertise and this view of the world to share it. I mean, I think that what, what one needs to encourage is curiosity about the world. Not, not, not a claim on one's own narrow patch, Edward Said's version, a you know, narrow patch of, of, of land and identification with that. So, uh, so I, I, think that, I think that the life, the future of the, the Cyclopedic Museum, the responsibilities we have, is a very different one than it was in the 19th century when it was being built in one place in Europe. I think now it's to be shared with the world. Thank you very much. <laughs>